0: Good morning. man. Bob's uh, message was quite fitting, I think, for probably every sermon. I pray that we have the ears to hear this morning what the Lord is saying. Uh, We have uh, the joy of being able to look at quite an extraordinary passage in Colossians 2, 6 to 15. And for those of you who read my sermon blurb, there is... One description that would quite aptly fit it, brief. It was quite brief. (laughs) Typically the preacher, uh, if you don't know, would write 150 to 200 words summarising their message. And I wrote six. Um, Believers, you are complete in Christ. Now while I hope that our understanding of this will deepen and grow as we hear this message, that is basically the thing that I want us to come away with. It is what I pray that we will remember and what will bring us to light in the days to come. Paul has spoken about Jesus already, told the church in Colossae of his supremacy and spoken of his deep desire, even while suffering in prison, for this church to know Jesus. And now he says, since you have this Jesus in your lives, you should live as somebody that has this Jesus in your lives. Some Bible translations would say, since you have Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, when you're a young teenager, before you had your license or even knew how to drive, if your parents had come up to you and said, we've just bought you a car. And since you have a car, go and drive it. And as he stood there with the keys of freedom in your hand what would the first question you would you would ask them to be How <laughs> Thanks so much for this car but I have no idea how to drive Tell me how teach me how Now this is the same reaction I think that we have for Paul I have Jesus but how am I to walk Paul. Teach me how. And this is exactly what Paul does. But he doesn't do it in this sermon. And he uh, doesn't do it in this passage. And in fact, it is this very question that will be answered in the weeks to come as Ray and John and uh, Grant preach. Today is not on the how-to teachings And I know it's a little bit like having a cliffhanger at the beginning of of an episode rather than at the end. It gives a little bit of an odd rhythm to a message to say this is what we're not going to be teaching this morning. But Paul has a very important reason. Before we attempt to walk and to live as people with Jesus, we need to know something of the nature of this new life. Something that Paul knows is essential knowledge for how we as Christians are to live. So what is this essential truth that we need? That you and I are to walk this new life as people who are complete in Christ. We are people that he says are rooted, built up and established in the faith. His instruction to live and to walk is something that we are to do. It's active. But the description that follows, rooted, built up and established in faith is written in a past tense as something that's already done. We are to live as people already complete, not as people working towards completion. As a young tree lives, it grows. And how does it do it? It does it by sinking its roots deep down into the earth, digging into the ground. It is the way a tree lives, Paul says, not so with the Christian. You start your life with an already fully developed root system. There is no more growth required. You're done. The task of building a house requires a daunting amount of work. You start with nothing. The land needs to be cleared. There are trenches to dig, pipes to lay, concrete, bricks, wood, metal, and much more. Not the case with the Christian. We start fully built, finished, job complete. Whatever the illustration, believers, you are complete in Christ. The job was done before you were born. There's nothing more to do. The roots aren't just big and continuing to grow. They are fully grown, the building doesn't require any touch ups, no leaking b- pipes or full gutters. Everything is perfect. The essential knowledge that Paul needs us to know about the life that we are to live with Christ is that we are people that are complete. And as a result, life is filled with abounding thankfulness, or as other translations read, overflowing. Thankfulness. Thankfulness to who? Thankfulness to the one who did the work. Of course, the one who grew the roots, the one who built us up, the one that established us. Thankfulness to Jesus. But being complete is a difficult truth for us to really accept, isn't it, in our hearts? I'm sure many people here react just as I did, even in hearing it now. We are complete in Jesus is just one of the things that we say as Christians, but it really doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any impact to how we really live. I mean, come on, there are so many things that are incomplete in my life, so much still that needs to be done. So many fixes needed. We don't understand that we live as people complete in Christ. It just doesn't seem true. Paul says in verse 8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy or empty deceit. The specifics of these deceits will come out in weeks to come as the others preach, but the big idea is this. Anything we encounter on TV, radio, billboards from other people or the little voices in our heads that tell you that you are not complete in Christ, is a lie. Anything that tells you that more is needed, something other than or an addition to Jesus is an empty deceit. Anything that says the road to a full life is any other road than what Christ has already done is false. The church in Colossae was surrounded by false teaching And one philosophy was that of pantheons. Not one God, but many gods. Each one in charge of something different. Fertility, the ocean, war, parties, love, on and on. And the threat the church faced was that Jesus was just another God on this list. One more that sat on the shelf with the others. One more that helped with some aspect of love. Perhaps he was the God of forgiveness. He didn't deal with everything. He didn't provide the completeness. He just assisted in it. It's another box to be ticked for everything to go well and for life to be satisfying. And our culture isn't much different. Looking up some philosophy this week, I came across ideas of moralism. To live a full life, you must be a good person wellness, life balance, fitness, comfort, consumerism, just owning something will bring completion or add to that completion. I read blogs that listed five to ten things that you must do to maintain and live a full life and yet that same blog writer would say that this list is totally different for everyone and that you should just follow your instincts, trust your instincts, These modern lists may not have names like Aphrodite, Ares or Poseidon, but they are the gods of today. The world is filled with philosophy and empty deceit, things you must do to grow your roots and to be built up. Beware these philosophies. Paul says to the church that they will cheat you. They don't add to the completion Christ gives. They are not harmless. They steal from you and rob you. These voices trick us away from the completeness that can be had in Christ, that Christ has delivered and that they can never deliver. This is the way of the world, the tradition of humanity. We were born and raised hearing these lies. So when Paul says, beware them, he is not just speaking about new philosophies that come our way, but also the ones we have already bought into. When we hear a message on our completion in Christ and our hearts scoff, that's just something we say. We are being cheated by empty philosophies we have already bought into. So beware Now, if the world's philosophy on how to get a complete life is false, what is the way of Christ? Our completeness comes from our unity with him. Look at our passage and what phrase do we see again and again and again? Eight times we read the words in him or with him. We walk in him, rooted and built up in him. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. You are complete in him. In him you were circumcised, buried with him, raised with him, alive together with him. I think Paul may be making a point. The way of Christ means seeing yourself and Jesus as intimately bound together, unified, And this is not a lame unity, I think you can already tell. Often we hear the words used to describe simply non-confrontational relationships. We're unified because we aren't publicly screaming at one another. But on the inside, there may be something different. Or as one man put to me, unity is achieved and maintained by sweeping issues under the rug. That is a sad unity. And it's not the unity of this passage. This passage shows a unity that is more like one glass of water being poured into another. Nothing is hidden between them. Who can tell them apart? Who can separate them? You, believer, are mixed with Jesus. Our fates stirred together. The person of one, who they are, is shared by the other. The actions of one, is shared by the other. And the last and more biting aspect is that the consequences of one's actions are shared by the other. Believers, you are complete in Christ because you are unified to him. Because of who he is and what he has done. Who he is, is seen in verses 9 and 10. He is the possessor of the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the head of all principalities and power. At the time, Paul wrote this message, it was not unusual to find people worshipping divine beings, such as angels. So here, when he speaks of Christ as having the fullness of God, he wants to make clear that Jesus is so much more than just an angel. He is the authority above and beyond all principalities and powers in this earth. He is as high as it goes. More than that, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Meaning it is not an authority that exists only within his divine self, but in his humanity. In his humanity, meaning that if we are unified to him, we too share in the full power and authority of the Godhead. You, your completion is in him. And it is so much more than we can imagine. So I'm going to get a little poetic, use a bit of poetic license, because I think we need a bit of poetic license to break through some rigid boundaries of our rationality. For you to share in the fullness of the Godhead is to be like a cup that is full. And in that fullness, it is filled with every ocean of the world, all the rivers, the lakes, the dams, the creeks, and even the water tanks. And that's just the surface of the cup. Do you get it? No. And that's fine, because neither do I. (laughs) We are contemplating the fullness of the Godhead in Christ and in us. It is supposed to boggle the mind. How has such a thing happened? It has happened by what Christ has done. What he did on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection... In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, circumcision of old was a physical sign of becoming the people of God. When it was undertaken in the Jewish context, it symbolized transition. You move from being outside the people of God to being one of the people of God. Now, the circumcision we have just read about is not a physical one. It says it is circumcision without hands, meaning that it is not done by people. It's referring instead to what Paul and Moses called circumcision of the heart, something that only God does. So the circumcision that we receive through Christ is not what occurred to him as a baby in the temple, but actually speaks of the stripping of his flesh upon the cross. Christ died to atone for our sin. He paid the penalty of our sin, and in doing so, threw aside the sinful nature of the flesh, separated it, so that in our unity with him, he died our death, the consequence of our action. So that you can say, In Him, I have already died. My sin has been crucified in Christ. And in His action, we receive what He did. We were also buried with Him in baptism. In the 1700s, the practice of gibbeting was common punishment in England. Criminals, murderers, highwaymen and apparently pirates as well were killed and placed in cages at major intersections. Their decaying corpses were a bit graphic to remind the people of their crimes and to discourage others from similar actions. Our sinful bodies are not left upon the cross to remind us of our sinful past, to fill us with guilt and shame of what has already happened, of what we have done. That body, our body, was buried with Christ. It is gone. Our sin forgiven. It has no impact on us anymore. It is not there to remind us to stay in line, to fill us with guilt and shame and to haunt us as we live our new life some translations say that the record of our sin has been wiped away like a whiteboard it is forever forgotten gone our bodies have already been buried in our union with christ when he was buried we were buried his burial is our burial And we have been raised to new life. This is where you are now. It has already happened in Jesus. His resurrection is our resurrection. We don't just die and get buried in Christ, but are made alive together again with him. A life that is now a part of the people of God. Transition from life to death, from incomplete to complete the end of our sinful life and the beginning of a holy one. The same power of God that defeats death and raised Christ to life has also raised us. I don't think it can be said better than what it says in our passage. You, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross Lord give us ears to hear this message this morning believers you are complete in Christ your sin is dead and gone You were alive in Him. As we draw to the end of the message, I want to tell you a part of my own story. Early in 2012, I found myself struggling. At work, at home, and within my own heart was an expectation to be perfect. At work, the expectation was unrealistic deadlines without fault and error. At home and in my heart, it was to be the perfect Christian, always patient, always loving, caring and wise, without fault or error. And stupidly, I tried to meet these expectations in my own strength. No matter how much effort I put in, it was not good enough. And every failure seemed only to haunt my next effort, making it so much worse. And one particular evening, I arrived home after after 33 hours of working without sleep or going home. As I said, I tried to meet these expectations. And when I got home, I realised something was horribly wrong. The burden had become too much. I needed help desperately. So I turned to the only one I knew that could save me and I picked up my Bible and started reading. I knew that was where the answers had to be, hoping I would find something. So my plan was to read and continue reading until I found that thing that was going to help me, that piece of truth. And for some reason, I started in Galatians and I read only a couple of chapters to chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, which is so similar to our passage this morning. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, lived, who loved me and gave himself for me. And I read that and I thought, I don't understand this at all. But it's my answer. So I read again and again and again until the Lord opened my eyes to see what it was talking about. I, me, Nat, the man filled with strife and burden and failure, Has been crucified. He, in all of his worries and expectations, is dead and buried and forgotten. And the one who lives now wasn't that man any longer, but Christ, perfect, full, complete. My cup was full, and the deep relief and joy and abounding thankfulness that came on me was like a wave. I had been trying to live a life as a Christian without Christ. I had Christ, so I tried to live that way, but I tried to do it without knowing that I was unified to Him and that His death was my death, His burial, my burial, and His resurrection, my resurrection. And in Him I was complete. I am complete. And I was free. Now, it's a funny thing to explain a personal encounter with God in mere words. It's never the same thing. But returning to the start of our passage, do you see the reason that Paul doesn't immediately dive into how to live the Christian life and instead starts by growing our understanding of our completion in Christ? How can we live Without what makes us complete, without who He is and what He has done, what type of life would that be? Moreover, let's consider the life we can live with Him in completion, filled with the fullness of the Godhead, forgiven, sin forgotten, free. What would that mean for our marriages? What does that mean for our parenting and grandparenting, for our work? Some things to consider as the weeks go by. So I want to say this one more time in case it hasn't stuck. Believers, you are complete in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, having heard your word and your message, having heard a good news, Lord, of a job that is finished and done and complete. We don't need to pray, Lord, that these things would happen. They're already done. This is who we are. This is the truth that we can live in. So the thing I pray for this morning, Lord, for the sake of your glory, Lord, is that we would have the eyes to see this, the ears to hear this and know that it is not just an eye of some distant person that is complete, but it is us now in what you have done. Lord, to know that there is so much that we have been given through what Jesus has done. And all of it an action by His hand, your hand. We've just received it in giving in having faith in you. A gift. A gift so that we might live free. Overflowing with thankfulness. Thank you, Lord for saving us, for making us complete so that we can live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.